0: Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 130 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday afternoon. It's July 31st. It's
1: 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, it is the non-waiver trade deadline in Major League Baseball today. Oh, for a second, I thought for sure you would complete that sentence by saying, amongst
0: law faculty. Oh, well, it's also that.
1: Are you you wondering if today's the day you get traded? (laughs) <laughs> for, for a player to be named later, for a,
0: oh, or a bag of cash, or a, so.
1: So my two favorite, my two beer. favorite uh, uh, trades in in Major League Baseball history, which I think has has a richer history of trades than the other sports, at least when I think, at least off the top of my head. Um, so the first is there's a guy a couple years ago who was traded for a player to be named later, and then he was the player to be named later.
0: <laughs> they just were like, eh, let's send this guy back." It's
1: like, okay, uh, that's crazy. I like um, that. Yeah. Eh. Um but, but actually my favorite favorite story, and I, I haven't I didn't go back to check if, if I have my facts exactly right, which as we'll see later in the show is a problem. Um but the if I recall correctly, Joel Youngblood, who was this like Uber utility man for the well, for a bunch of mediocre National League teams in the mid nineteen eighties, I believe that there was a Mets maybe Cubs or maybe Expos doubleheader where in between the two games he was traded from one team to the other. Okay. And, <laughs> and so, literally, just edit. like walked across the way. <laughs> okay. Got to change your
0: signs in that case.
1: This is part of why I love baseball because like random stuff happens. I last week, I think, um, for the first time in Major League Baseball history, um, there was this quirky thing where a player who, where a player, both started a game and recorded a save. Okay, oh, there's that a game. position player who closed the, out that big right uh, extraneous that game. that Orioles, out. whatever. So, it, not the first position player ever to record a save, but the first who started the game.
0: So I don't normally, you know, catch, these days I don't normally catch Center or other recap shows in the morning, but I happened to have that on, uh-huh. and I wasn't really listening, but I saw somebody, you know, they were like, hey, closing the game, they showed the pitch, and it was like this, it's even like I could see it was miles like this very an hour. slow pitch. It was too slow. Yeah, and, and then I listened, and they said, yeah, I was a position player doing that. All right, so um, <laughs> we've started off with some frivolity. M- much uh, and I would talk well, about baseball all day if I could. We, we will probably come back to some at the end. We're just going to have an open frivolity can, at the end. Can you
1: tell the Mets are playing better? 'Cause my my degree of paying attention has increased.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we will talk about them and what kind of moves they're making to the trade deadline. Or not. But, Don't make any moves. But in between all the baseball, uh, we are going to talk about national security and law. And uh, succession. We have a succession fest. Succession. Se- Success. S- S- succession is something else. Well, what if we have a succession fest while well, we're on the radio here? Beware, country.
1: Um, uh, no, we'll have a succession And not fest. just because the second season of the HBO show that Karen and I like, Succession, is premiering on August 11th, although that too That too. But we have real succession. No, we're going to talk about the Director of National Intelligence,
0: and we're going to talk about... uh, Fun with the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. We're going to talk about Homeland Security, um, and we might even throw in some some other related topics when we get to the end of that. Uh, Then we'll pivot over to the military commissions. You have some follow-up items from last week. Follow-up
1: slash things I had fallen behind in tracking correctly, so I want to make sure the record is straight. Okay, we're going to... Correct the record on some stuff. We're gonna take a quick
0: glance at what the Supreme Court is doing over the Nothing. summer. <laughs> Although we
1: did have this, uh, we did have this order right in the border wall case. Yeah,
0: yeah. We'll, we'll, so we have a, just a couple of little notes since yeah. we've we've picked up this habit of noting Supreme Court stuff, even when it's not you know always spot on for us, but. Hey, we actually should talk about that. We didn't We didn't plan
1: that in our pre-show, the,
0: the border wall order. Oh, okay, yeah, we should throw that in there as well, for totally. sure. Um, and then a little bit of a National Security Division roundup with a big development in a case we profiled back in February, episode 109, the state Ooh. of the podcast is strong, the case of United States versus Hamid Hayat. We've got a result from a thing that we talked about then. So stay tuned to find out what the thing was and what happened to the thing. Um, and that'll be it. So this so, I'll say this as I sometimes do, Steve. This will be a short show, I think. Ha!
1: Famous last word. No, this one will be, I think. Every, everyone knows that when you say that, you know, they should buckle in for at least an hour. <laughs> of of uh, long frivolity, at least. Okay. Although so, we don't even have a frivolity topic. We're just going to wing it. What is That's it, dangerous. What is
0: it on succession that prompted us uh, both to be thinking about it this week? Because there's something every
1: week. There is something every week. So um, Dan Coates, the the director of national intelligence, um, to no one's surprise, I think, given where the, the headlines have been going for weeks, Announced that he is formally resigning his position effective August fifteenth. So which matters to
0: our story? There's, is going to take effect pretty soon, but it hasn't taken effect yet.
1: And so as as because this is the Trump administration, when a you know is is DNI still cabinet? Uh, Yes. I I don't know if the cuff. Uh, Well, when a senior government official resigns, there's always a question about who exactly the president can pick to succeed him. Now, we should say, the president has already expressed his intent to nominate a permanent successor. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Uh,
0: Texas' own uh, John Ratcliffe. uh, Congressman. Congressman from the 4th District, which is the area basically... Picture Dallas and then, and then everything kind of northeast from there in Texas. Is that Tyler? Is that uh, Tyler country? I don't know if Tyler's in or out, to no. be honest. I, yeah. It might be a little below that line, actually. The, the Rose capital of Texas. Uh, the Tyler Rose. So so Radcliffe is a name you may recognize because he suddenly became very prominent for his very loud, very uh, friendly to the president uh, <laughs> impression he made in questioning Robert Mueller during the Mueller testimony uh, recently. So, it's almost like he planned it. Well, it, it is by all accounts. It certainly got favorable reviews. My the story I I picked up from reading this article and that or, article was he was in the mix for consideration for whatever reason. He does not have an He his long credentials. He doesn't have an IC background, but he did have a, a number of years where he was the the DOJ uh, sort of I forget the precise title, but when he was a U.S. attorney, uh, I assume Northern District of Texas. Steve, I think is that's that right. right? Yeah, Dallas. Um, you know, he was the either the, the head for the JTTF or at least the DOJ chief representative so on, ter- some, on, on terrorism issues in an area of Texas, or at least that's what
1: i had been told. So that is how he has represented himself. There is actually some meaningful debate about whether he has overinflated his involvement in particular cases, um, right? Whether he just like – whether in the context of his supervisory duties – people who worked for him were involved in these cases, or whether he was actually hands-on. Now, this is relevant, Bobby, because the DNI statute um, is actually unusual right? In, in what it says about experience. Well, I, I know it says stuff
0: like that. I know it says, as to the principal Sorry, the principal
1: deputy. Yeah, but it doesn't say
0: that's to the DNI. So True. let's elaborate that. This is very interesting. The principal deputy director of national intelligence, by statute, 50 must- U.S.C.
1: section 3026.
0: Sub A three, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Wow. Oh, well done. Thank you. I never, I never do that. That's my best Steve Latac impersonation. Seriously. Um, it's
1: only because it's. I've looked at it recently. Uh, A three says that uh, the. P- any individual nominate any yeah. individual nominate for appointment as as principal deputy DNI. So PD yeah. DNI. So you must
0: be. It's not. It's not about who can be acting. It's about who can be nominated. Shall
1: Sh- have extensive national security experience and management expertise. Right. So
0: that's all great. Like I don't think anybody thinks that's a bad idea. Interesting question. Um, is that constitutional?
1: You know, I'm not sure. So. Um, Usually, the way that Congress, you know, imposes substantive requirements is in the acting context, right? Where, for example, um, you can't be, you know, acting cabinet secretary if you're also the nominee if you hadn't previously been the first assistant. Um, recognizing that actually constraining who the gu- who the president can nominate raises Article Two questions. Indeed. But on the flip side, there's one very important example of an of a statutory constraint on the president's. P- power to nominate even cabinet secretaries, the Secretary of Defense, right, must have been retired from the military for at least seven years. Um, Congress can waive that, as it did for Secretary right, Mattis. but
0: we devoted a lot of attention to explaining that was, in fact, something Congress has long...
1: And no one's... To my knowledge, I am I am unaware of yeah. an argument from an executive branch officer that that constraint is unconstitutional. And so if if, if you can do that for the Secretary of Defense... So then the question becomes – so there's an argument from practical let, – let's back up a
0: little bit. For those who don't know know the law on this issue, the, the Constitution in Article 2 vests the nomination power clearly in the president. Yep. Uh, and and we're, nobody sp- else. And nobody Espe- else. Especially for principal officers. For principal officers. Now, the Senate has to confirm, but that's the check on this. So for Congress to come along and create a sub- – any kind of qualification yeah. – for for the ability to nominate, it's it's not at all obvious that that's actually constitutional. Now, enter into the mix the example. Is the, is the principal p-
1: deputy a principal officer though, or is or is he or she an inferior officer? Because I think that complicates this. Right. I think Congress subordinate more, to the DNI. Right, right? and so yeah. I think Congress actually has. So I actually think the Secretary of Defense case is harder, yeah. right? Because I think a principal officer by both. Supreme Court precedent and tradition, it's supposed to have Congress has less ability to, to, right. to restrict. Whereas an inferior officer, Congress can actually take the, the appointment power away from the president. So if that's the right
0: characterization of the PDDDN, I don't know I haven't thought about that carefully um, but
1: usually yeah. subordinate's usually a, a principal deputy is usually an inferior officer because yeah. they report to a principal officer as And their the principal deputy reports to the DNI so yes.
0: therefore okay probably
1: I th- in the principal deputy conference. but there's an interesting question though about yeah. you know can Congress impose these kinds of requirements Leaving that aside the real question for Ratcliffe, I think is whether his I'll say modest experience yeah. Right. Um, is gonna cause any hiccups with regard to Senate confirmation. So I think probably not. I mean there yeah. will be there will be a proper amount of
0: asking about it. Yep.
1: But if he ends up having
0: a problem and he doesn't get confirmed, I'll predict it's not it's not for want of experience. Right. It might
1: be more concerned about like, you know, he's too um uh, attached to the president. He's not going to be sufficiently protective of the intelligence community Yeah, I think those sorts of
0: things and, uh, and I don't think the Senate's likely to uh, to actually, you know, bounce him on that basis I think they'll get like really of you, but,
1: you don't think the Republicans yeah. in the Senate are gonna to stand to the president over his pick to be DNI Exactly. I'm shocked. So uh,
0: so eventually th- What we're saying is eventually he will probably become the DNI, but in the meantime, there's this period like, starting on April 16th uh, August Sorry, I yeah. said April. Yes. Eight months. They, they, they blurted together. No, so uh, as of August 15th, Dan Coates is out. Somebody's got to have the position of acting DNI. There's no way Ratcliffe's getting confirmed before then. No. So that's where it gets interesting. The president's original tweet said, I will announce <laughs> shortly. Enacting uh, an, an an acting DNI will be announced shortly.
1: To we which sh- Bobby responded. Not so fast! Not so fast, Mister. Re- no. you, you you totally pulled a Steve. You you both tweeted it before I did, right? I'm and very you proud ju- of that. And you jumped on the sort of no, Mister President. It's like me with DHS, right, with the the Claire Grady affair, as I call it. So, in in, in all fairness,
0: to me, and my my desire to be non snarky, I feel like I like had a you know it was very light on snark. I wasn't trying to write snarky, but I did I did t- retweet with comments saying it's not clear you, the president gets to do this, and here's why. Uh And the the, the essence of my argument is. Is that okay? So the, the whole office, the whole DNI and these offices, they're all created by the Intelligence Reform Terrorism Prevention Act. Of 2004, Ertpa. ERTPA, as it is known, is the big mega legislation that was sort of the the fruit of the post 9/11 lesson consideration process that decided, all right, we need better coordination across the IC uh, to help connect the dots, et cetera, to understand this better. Read my a- in
1: intelligence community.
0: Yes, uh, read Mike Allen's excellent book, Blinking Red, which you know tells the story of this you know, hugely important organic piece of legislation. It did other stuff too, but it created DNI. It created principal deputy DNI created the whole structure. Um, In addition to saying the stuff we noted just a moment ago about how the principal deputy has to have certain qualifications, um, it has some stuff in there that's interesting about vacancies and acting DNI status or acting officer status within the ODNI. So the two things are this. The one I hang my hat on is uh, a provision at A6 of that same statute we've been talking about. 50 USC
1: section 3026
0: A6. And it basically says that the principal deputies shall uh, perform the functions of, of the acting DNI during vacancy, etc. Now, I want to be really clear and upfront about this. Uh, several people have responded to my analysis saying like, yeah, that just means that in while there's actually literally a vacancy, as soon as he uses Federal Vacancy Reform Act authority to appoint somebody, then the principal deputy no longer should fill that function. I think that's a perfectly reasonable argument. Maybe that's even the right argument. I think the better argument is otherwise. And in part, this is a story of bad drafting because mm-hmm. the statute's, frankly, a bit of a mess on this. But if you go back to, uh, was it 3505 mm, or maybe?
1: 3345,
0: 30, 30, 30, the FBRA? No, 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 not that. I'm staying with the IRTPA oh. statute. If you go back and look at the uh, the... the Thirty five oh five creates the position of DNI, and 30, then 30.24? Oh,
1: 30, 20, 30, 30, I don't
0: know. We're, we're just going to drive the listeners mad if True. we keep throwing these numbers around. Just the, the provision that's parallel to the one we've been talking about that creates the DNI. It's 5 USC thirty twenty five. Thirty twenty five. It then has a provision under it that enumerates a bunch of other offices that shall exist mm-hmm. in the ODNI. That's thirty twenty
1: five c.
0: And then there's a provision towards the bottom that says something kind of interesting directly about the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. And what it says is, in dealing, this is 3025e. 3025e. Just, just in e. case you're, you're following along exactly. at home, this is the key one. 3025e e makes explicit reference to reverting to the Federal Vacancies Reform Act to fill vacancies for any of the aforementioned about 14 offices. And then parentheses, except for the DNI. Right. And then what it says is not just that you can refer to the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, but in doing so, in in applying the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, instead of being limited to drawing your acting appointee from ODNI itself, you could reach out to the broader intelligence community, the IC writ large, which is a bunch of other agencies. So it broadens the pool. I interpreted and I argued in a post at law fair that got a lot of traffic that the net effect of all this is that it's a, that Congress at least is trying to impose the rule that the acting needs to be the principal deputy and that that's why they're excluded from that one provision when no one else is excluded from it and that's why there is the shall language um, there is a counter argument that just reading the statute on its face no, no no, no they they for whatever reason They just wanted the Federal Vacancies Reform Act authority for filling the top job. They did want you to have to draw from the DNI's office. I think that's very hard to
1: imagine why that would be. It doesn't sound sensible. Right. Um, In in other words, kind of put a little more more flesh on that, right? So the reason why they had to grapple with the FERA issue at all is because when ODNI was, was stood up, it was pretty small. And yeah. so there was this concern that like, why would I want like junior staffer at ODNI when I could have like deputy NSA director to come in and be the acting DNI or the or or right, the acting principal deputy DNI? Um, and so Congress has said yes, we're going to treat ODNI as if it were an umbrella entity of the entire IC for purposes of finding people to temporarily fill vacancies. And then it says except DNI,
0: right? And then you turn the page to the next one, and it and it refers to the the principal deputy who is supposed to have the management experience right. and the national security experience. Right. Um, there, they shall exercise this function during the vacancy.
1: Now, I mean, I should say, so let me put this in context, if I may, right? So. In the abstract, I mean, I I had the same reaction you did. I mean, you just you just beat me to the punch, and I was so proud. I
0: know. I, I was did so you proud? feel like I was like, oh, look at him doing federal vacancies reform stuff? My, my
1: young Padawan. Yeah. Um, so the the out of context, this would seem like a no brainer. In context. It's much um, harder. This is – so the fight uh, – we've talked briefly about the federal vacancies reform act on this, sh- on this podcast before many times. I have tweeted about it more times I want to uh, acknowledge. Um, this is the, – the, the, the confrontation we keep having with Trump vacancies is where there's an apparent tension between the agency-specific statute and the FVRA. Um, right? I mean, sometimes there are questions about the FRA itself, but the, the big fight is usually does the agency specific statute even allow the president to resort to the FRA? This was the fight initially over the CFPB. Yep. And Mulvaney versus um English, Leandra English right? Mm-hmm. Um, this was the this was the centerpiece of the fight over DOJ. Yeah, and, and, and attorney, Matthew Whitaker. attorney General Matthew Whitaker, right? right? Yeah. Um, and in all those contexts, the argument is that you know you have st- you have agency specific statutes with mandatory language like shall, right? The principal deputy attorney general, the deputy attorney general shall. Well, well, that was May, right? That was the whole deal with DOJ. Sorry, DOJ. May, not shall. But okay, but CFPB it shall, right? Yeah. Um, and so and so you have this problem where shall by itself. Has not been deemed sufficient, at least by the government. So there's right. a. Right, OLC's written an opinion saying this. In the CFPB context. Now, right.
0: um, now that one, interesting, the CFPB specific statute didn't
1: actually talk about vacancies. That's right. Which made it distinguishable. No, no. So all these statutes are different. I mean the yeah. the to me the the the, the most the, the the clearest case that the government was going to lose was DHS. We talked about Claire Grady because the DHS succession statute expressly says notwithstanding any other law, right? There is a, you know, this statute is exhaustive, period. Shut up, go away, don't try again. Um, and so that's why they had to fire Claire Grady, because there was no way they couldn't get around it. to install Macauline in without you know without without getting rid of the next person in line in the DHS statute.
0: Let's put a pin in that and come back to it yeah. because uh, there's we, more DHS to talk. We, about. We've got to see what happened next in that story.
1: But here, right? So, so I think DNI is sort of not quite the same as DHS, but pretty close, right? That on the spectrum of yeah. how strong is the argument for the government right i think this is the second weakest one right. we've seen so
0: in other words the uh, the case for being bound by the dni specific statute stronger here because not, not than DHS stronger, stronger than, than DOJ, DOJ because DOJ just talked about how the deputy attorney general may exercise right. these functions. That's clearly permissive. This says shall, but for the reasons I said earlier, you can, you can, people have argued and I'm persuaded they're right. You can reasonably try to construe your way around this. If not for the fact you have this weird exclusion no, of no, the 30, DNI.
1: 3025C, I think is the ball, or is it? 3025E yeah. is the ball game because yeah. I think it's not just that the DNI succession statute expressly incorporates and plays with, right, the FBRA. It's not yeah. just, so in the DOJ statute, they're sort of you know talking past each other, yeah. right? Here, the ERPA, which which was enacted six years after the Federal Vacances Reform Act, was clearly responsive to the FBRA, provides specifically for how the two statutes interface, and draws a textual exception for the DNI. Yeah. I just, I, I, I you know, know I, the, Look,
0: I I completely agree, I, I what they're gonna argue, I know. they're gonna argue and say like, all that's happening in sub E is that the pool of potential uh, no. appointees for DNI is limited to and MD&I if I were personnel. a judge, so
1: OLC might be able to write an opinion with a straight face that says that. Yeah. If I were a judge considering this case, I would say it is implausible. Yeah. Right. Which is that my that's, position. Right, that's not that, the better that, reading. That, that, that that's what Congress actually intended. Right. Especially given what else is going like on. Like the, yeah,
0: they thought these other positions. It was important to be
1: able to draw on the full IC for your appointees, right. but not for the top job. Right. Now, it just doesn't make sense. And, and now let's talk about why this matters. Right. So this matters because i mean, I mean, you and I both think very well of Sue Gordon, right? The the current deputy director, the current, deputy right. direct, uh, the current he, principal deputy. She's a widely respected
0: career professional. Yep. Um, so it would make a ton of sense just let her be the acting. Just steer the ship,
1: right? Yeah. You know, I mean, the president's constitutionally entitled to name someone who even. Right. Ratcliffe like. Radcliffe will eventually be confirmed. Just right. let the acting be. Um, the The concern that the that com- the concern that has been voiced from anonymous sources within the administration is that Gordon is not sufficiently loyal to the president, and so the president is alarmed about the prospect of having the even temporary head of the IC be somebody who isn't you know a, tr- a Trumpista. Well, you know, Dan Coates wasn't as we
0: by the way I mean, I meant to ask you because we used to argue a bunch. You wanted Coates to resign on I principle did, of m- multiple points. times. Now that Radcliffe's the appointee, yes. do, you, do you do you side with me in retrospect that it, it all things being equal Best that Dan Coates stayed in. No, because Radcliffe <laughs> is still going to be the appointee. Like, I mean, you know. But in, in the meantime, all the stuff where he wasn't the DNI. Yeah. All the times. But that fine. That's but, but, but
1: but so so I would say the problem I would – my first reaction is no. My second reaction is even if the answer was yes, look at Coates' actual resignation letter. Like he's finally resigning. Um, and unlike Mattis, right, did not in his resignation letter go out of his way to say you know, to make some points that I think he could and should have made about. The oh, IC. I don't know that what
0: good would what utility that would have had. I don't. I can't imagine anything he would have put in his letter, short of like. Really, sh- you know, dramatic revelations, which you well, know, I don't think we're
1: going to see in the Dan Coates yeah, resignation. That's letter. fair enough. Anyways, we've gone down the rabbit hole a little bit. Let's let's close this out. So wait, so so the last, yeah. so so you and I agree that the that that the much better legal argument is that the president has no discretion to name anyone other than Sue Gordon. That indeed right. automatically, well,
0: as long as as long as someone is currently well, right. a so principal so deputy. so
1: the here's the problem. The problem is the Claire Grady scenario, which right. is then they even the White House lawyers reach the same conclui pie by the way yeah. right reach the same <laughs> conclusion that we do that there isn't even a good faith that unlike in the CFPB right. case there isn't even a good faith argument all he has to do between now and August 15th is Fire Sue Gordon or or demand her resignation.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, that that's probably right now. I think that that's sort of the silver lining here because I don't think those lawyers are going to feel bound by our analysis. No, um, I think they're they going to should think that they're just going to extend the CFPB analysis and say it's, it's basically the same thing, slightly different fact pattern, but same result. Therefore, appoint who you wish. And the silver lining there is that it does not require uh, something. Uh, in the nature of firing or forcing out Sue Gordon who doesn't deserve that and shouldn't be treated that way. None of
1: these people deserve that. I know. I, mean, I Claire, want to make this Claire specific point. And I'm not denying that either. So all this is to say, I mean, um, I would not be surprised if in the next you know, 14 days, right, we yeah. hear that Sue Gordon is leaving her position as principal deputy. Um, and, that, and I think you and I both agree that once there is no Senate-confirmed principal deputy, the DNI statute is no longer preclusive, right? right, It goes back to federal vacancies reform, right? So, so as with DHS, there's one person, right, standing between the president and the FVRA, right?
0: If they follow our interpretation, so I predict they won't follow our interpretation therefore else. therefore they will not remove sue gordon now they all this attention and the buzz it's the the unwanted attention it's drawn to the idea that sue's an independent pro- career professional that may well cost her in the end anyways yes. but the most reasonable and i think still most likely path forward is Some person who's already Senate confirmed somewhere else some other position under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act is just placed in as the acting, and we can all tut-tut whether that's right, but it'll not get litigated. In any event, it'll get resolved by the confirmation eventually of John Ratcliffe. Sue can stay in place as the principal deputy. She can. Which would be the best thing for the country.
1: That's probably right. Yeah, Yeah. that's probably right. Um, Now- the the acting director right cannot be from the whole IC pool for the employment part right because that's the whole point of thirty twenty five E acting director has to be has right to be, has to, so right so there right if, ra- if
0: twenty if if sub E means anything right. it means you've got to pick from within DNI so so, doesn't
1: that, it? so so the buckets are small, right because remember the mm. three FBRA buckets are the first assistant we all agree that's Sue Gordon right and if you're gonna pick her just why why pick the statutory fight if she's going to be, be acting anyway um someone senate confirmed somewhere else that's your supposition right but there's a third bucket which is senior non-senate confirmed people within the agency right which w- they're not gonna do that well that's the thing so this is why the 3025 e amendment matters because the agency for purposes of any position other than director is the entire ic right but the
0: director is only only dni
1: and so the question is whether there's some other senior person at dni who the president would prefer to sue Gordon as the acting DNI. So
0: I think the answer to that is going to be no. This is going to be a bunch of people that won't look different to him from yeah. that perspective or to the White House from that perspective. And so, then so then we're talking about someone from – We're going to get Someone Senate
1: confirmed from somewhere else. Exactly. It's going to be somebody – Nick Mulvaney. <laughs> he's, he's not busy.
0: <laughs> a, a currently serving uh, – Uh, Anyways, so yeah, I think you're right. So pretty soon, next two weeks, prediction, you heard it here first. They'll name somebody who's got a Senate confirmed position elsewhere in the executive branch, not ODNI. They'll become the acting. What you want to be looking for is the absence of anything mentioning Sue. That's good. That means she's just continuing on doing her job, which is good for the country. And then we'll move on to the confirmation hearing for John Ratcliffe, and eventually he'll get confirmed and then we'll see what we're gonna see. Then we will see. Buckle then up. We'll see. All right. Um,
1: all right. We want to talk briefly about two other succession-related yeah. things. So yeah. first, the continuing question of DHS. Okay. So give us the backstory. So <laughs> um, there was this whole. Pre- I think by far the most preposterous of all of the succession scenarios that we've seen so far is what happened at DHS, where Secretary Nielsen resigned and then unresigned once it was pointed out that her resignation would elevate Claire Graded Acting Secretary. And they had to, so Nielsen unresigned just long enough so that they could fire Grady so that by the time she actually resigned, um, they could pick whoever they wanted and they picked Kevin McAleenan, right, who was previously the head of what, CBP, to be the acting DHS secretary. That's where we are. Okay. Um, There is a growing concern uh, in various parts of Washington that the administration's real goal for DHS is to have Ken Cuccinelli somehow become the acting DHS secretary. Um, And the step the administration took in this direction was Um, What, about a month or six weeks ago, they pulled this preposterous move to install Cuccinelli as the acting director of, Bobby, USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. There's no, um, it's not like USCIS agency, it's just USCIS. Yeah. Um, And the way they did that was, even though there's already a deputy director of USCIS, they created a brand new position called principal deputy director, named Mm -hmm. Cuccinelli to it, and then all of a sudden, that became the first assistant for purposes of the federal vacancies reform. That is some—that's some creativity right there. Uh, any uh, time limits on that? So the in, here's where things get even messier than we already thought they were. the The way it's supposed to work is you can only be the acting holder of an office um, for 210 days, right? Once the once you're put in that position. Now, what's, what's that from? Um, it's from when you become the acting office. No, holder. I mean, like, what's oh. the source of that rule? Uh, it's in the statute. It's 5 U.S.C. 3346. Okay. It's part of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. Now, the 200-day period is not absolute, right? You can actually, it can be extended if there is a nomination of a permanent office holder. doesn't look like there's going to be. So 210 days. But at the on day 211, Cuccinelli is still the principal deputy. And so the administration has been doing this thing where even once folks can no longer claim to be the acting whatever, they continue to exercise the functions of the acting whatever as the principal deputy. So, so it's, just was, act, it's the
0: acting officer without the title. That's right.
1: Yay. And, and there's then, no
0: forcing function to prevent this.
1: Well, there's no statutory forcing function to prevent right. this.
0: Like what would be the – so the, the question of where's the default position? Yes. Well, it's with them. There they are, exercising the authorities. Right. And unless somebody's going to take it to court somehow, some way, Which, it just Which, by the way, in the DNI
1: contest, I have no idea how that could work. Exactly. Right? That's, that's
0: why I've said like, yes. no, there's no
1: litigating any of this. Well, well, DHS is easier, right? At least a little bit easier, because these are folks who are putting their names on like removal orders right, or other things that actually cause direct impact to people. Um, but separate from how long can stays stay as acting CIS director? There's the broader question of, is there any scenario where he can become acting DHS secretary? And I think the answer is no. So, remember, there are three buckets. First assistant. Okay, there's no scenario where he's going to be the first assistant because unlike the preposterous bootstrap move they pulled to make him yeah, acting You can't director, do that
0: at DHS at
1: large. You can't do that to the because the, by statute, Congress yeah. has created the position of deputy secretary. Right. And deputy secretary His is first, first assistant. assistant. Um, He's not Senate confirmed, so there goes the second bucket. Now, the third bucket talks about people with senior positions who have served in that senior position, but here's where things get messy. For at least 90 of the 365 days, Bobby, preceding the vacancy. And that office was never vacant because it did not exist? No, no. No, no so oh, the vacancy its now proceed, to be filled. When that, oh, that? Right, well, so he wasn't there then. He wasn't there before yeah. Nielsen resolved. There you go. Right, so, so he's not eligible. I don't any of these see pathways. any scenario where they could make Cuccinelli the acting judge. That leaves only
0: a raw Article II constitutional prerogative. God argument. help us. So that, that that is the argument that the FVRA would be unconstitutional if applied in this way to constrain the president's discretion to uh, designate someone as a nominee. I
1: I have to say I mean you know that we we every day we find new definitions of chutzpah right? But I have to but but you know the having having spent two and a half years twisting the FVRA into a pretzel to be able to name whoever you want <laughs> and then to say and that then to say oh it's too constraining it's unconstitutional. Well okay so that's a really tough one
0: too because of course. They, it's not just that they want to be able to nominate him. They then need to be able to sell it to they the Senate. They don't to want our, to be able to nominate him. They, well, they yeah, is not point. confirmable. Sorry, I, I meant to say appoint. Appoint him. But it's important they, to say l- let, me, let me finish. Sorry. They, he's, so you got me worked up. Yeah, I know. It's good. I, love, I do love it when you get wound up. Um, they want to be able to appoint him to become the acting DHS secretary under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. They can't seem to do it. There's no path forward for it. And if they do bust out sort of a, a raw Article 2 claim, which the president lately has had on his mind, apparently, because we've had these couple of bizarre interviews where he says... Weird, article 2 lets me do anything. Yeah, I article want. <laughs> 2 lets me do anything. You wonder, like, was that because somebody was talking about how our fallback plan here is going to be for you to issue this executive order that will say that the Federal Vacancies Reform Act is unconstitutional as applied to this particular circumstance? Therefore, as of today, I direct that he'd be allowed to serve as acting. Is there any way that... That can be litigated or put into a position of direct challenge, or is the only check on that the political consequences and the possibility that Congress might leverage the executive branch in
1: some other ways, maybe an appropriations response that affects DHS? So I think I think the acting I think the, the DHS secretary, the acting secretary signs enough stuff. Right and is sued enough? Yeah, There's I think stuff. there'd be I think there'd be plenty of avenues for for a fully fleshed out legal challenge. Right, rather as there w- was with CFPB. That's right. Um, DNI is harder. Right, but all this is to say, um, you know, Congress. Hi. All right. So let's imagine imagine that one way or the other, uh,
0: Cuccinelli is the acting. We've got we've got other acting people. In Lots of acting positions. secretaries. Um, Interesting question, kind of a parlor game here. Everyone loves talking about the 25th Amendment and cabinet secretaries. Well, you unpack for us if you can uh, how the 25th Amendment is supposed to work. Um, But (laughs) but the idea of is this not the one that – contemplates the cabinet uh, deciding that the president is incompetent?
1: So, okay. And if so, do the
0: actings get a vote or do you have to be Senate confirmed? So there are
1: a lot of really bad, right, fiction stories that have at their core. It feels like a Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, or Clive Um, Right. (laughs) Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, which is the mechanism by which uh, the vice president and majority of the principal officers of the executive departments can effectively remove the present. Now, I should say, Bobby, everything I know about the subject I learned from Brian Kalt, um, who's a, a, a buddy and a, and a, a prolific scholar on, on this and related issues at Michigan State. Um, so, one of the questions is whether the, a majority of the principal officers includes acting or not, in, I, Bobby, either in the numerator or the denominator. Um, mm. So that's to say, right? There, there's a conspiracy theory out there that part of why the president likes actings is because he's been told that they count, that the that the position counts in the denominator, and the actings don't count in the numerator for purposes of it creates removing like a him. quorum problem. Well, no, there's, there'll be a it, it, it creates, it creates a mathematical impossibility that there will right. be a, enough votes to remove him, right. no matter what yeah. he does.
0: I, I think he has plenty of other more more present reasons to like the acting by
1: his own I, account. I think that—so I think that—right, I agree with all of that. I don't think he's playing four-dimensional chess. Um, <laughs> I, I will just say, though, on, on the question—I mean, there is this open question about when acting secretaries count as secretaries and when they don't, right? So for the most part— Congress has not distinguished between the legal authority of an acting secretary and the legal authority of a Senate-confirmed secretary. Um, The 25th Amendment, Bobby, is silent on the question, but one, I think, pretty powerful um, analogous statute is the Presidential Succession Act of 1947. Um, And the Presidential Succession Act of 1947, in referring to the order of succession for the presidency kind of a big deal right yeah. Now, now we're, we're past the Federal Vacancies Reform Act when we're up to the presidential Succession Act yeah um, expressly requires that to be in the presidential line of succession you must be Senate confirmed um, Now as Brian notes there's some question about whether that means Senate confirmed to the position you're holding right so so like the Secretary of State do you have to have been Senate confirmed to Secretary of State to be able to succeed to the president as Secretary of State? Right, but at the very least, you have to have been Senate confirmed. That's a statutory requirement to be a cabinet officer who succeeds to the presidency. So there's at least an argument, I think, right, that hmm. by that logic, um, vacant cabinet offices should count to neither the numerator nor the denominator for purposes of the Twenty Fifth Amendment. But Man. we're 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 so far into uncharted territory here. Can you imagine if this somehow had to be litigated? <laughs> No, because the constitutional crisis that it would require to get us to a place where that was being litigated... Can't be fixed by courts. Can't be fixed by courts. I mean, this is one of my favorite, you know, we've talked, I think, very briefly on this show before about the Supreme Court's political question doctrine decision in the Walter Nixon case, Nixon Mm -hmm. versus the United States. And one of my favorite exchanges is between Rehnquist and his majority opinion and White and his concurrence, where Rehnquist is talking about, like, the constitutional crisis that could result if a president was removed... Um, and claims the Senate did it, you know, wrongly and the courts somehow are able to, in- to interfere. And White says, well, at that point, the constitutional crisis will not be the court's intervention, <laughs> right? We-, we will be far enough along into the constitutional crisis at that point that maybe we want somebody who's in a position to fix it.
0: Uh, another thing I think is fascinating about the 25th Amendment, Section 4, is there's a real brief reference in there to the fact that Congress, is, the Constitution expressly delegates to Congress the power to designate some, some other, other body, body to make this choice. Yeah. How
1: about the University of Texas Law School faculty? <laughs> That's a pretty awful idea. Yeah. Um, I love my college. Not, not but... <laughs> that Congress has ever exercised its power under <laughs> No the right. The yeah. Minutes. Let's
0: be clear. Congress hasn't done this, but so. but it's wild to think that they clearly have the power and it's <sighs> unconstrained. They could pick the New York Mets pitching staff and have that be the body. Oh, that be... may
1: be changing as we as we sit here. That's right. Well, we'd have a
0: su- we have secession there, <laughs> succession there too, succession and we secession. may end up with su- secession depending on what happens a su- there. A,
1: a succession of yeah. secession succession stories. That is Susian in its complexity. Episode title?
0: <laughs> You'd have to type that for me. <laughs> All
1: right. Um, so Bobby promised a short show, and we're already at 37 minutes. Right. Ha! Told you. No. That was told you. All right, um, give us some errata. Yeah. So um, I made I made I made a, a, a fatal mistake. I a, I fell victim to one of the classic blunders last week. <laughs> you started a land war in Asia? I I wanted <laughs> I went, in, I went in against a Sicilian when with death, death on was the line. on the line. Um, is it Sicilian or Italian? Sicilian. Sicilian.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's what he says.
1: Um. So um, I, I had sort of uh, skimmed a story about what was going on in the military commissions and had failed to realize it was about 14 layers more complex than, than, this, than the first couple of graphs of the story made on, led on. Uh, so just to be clear, we talked last week in some detail about the debate over whether what happened to the 9-11 defendants was outrageous governmental conduct. Um, this has actually come up, Bobby, not in the context of a roachin motion, a motion to dismiss, but rather in the context of the continued fighting over just what access to what evidence right, the parties are entitled to. So we're still in the discovery fight, basically. Oh. Okay. Um, and even worse than that, I refer to Judge Perella, I'm a judge behind, right? Oh, <laughs> we're on to Judge Cohen. <laughs> okay. so right, Sorry about that, Judge but, Perella, but, but Judge I ju- Cohen. But I do have to say, I mean, you know, I am, I am mortified by my superficiality in that respect. I am also reminded that, like, on the, you know, as, as far as it goes for people in this country who pay attention to the military commissions, I have to think I'm in probably the top you know, yeah, 1%. Yeah, you're a high percentile. And even I can't keep track of all this shit.
0: No, there's no – it's really something. Hey, but uh, that's – at least you're you're doing
1: something, right? Where would we be without you? Uh, we'd be much better off. Um, but then one more point. So I had mentioned also the really major ruling by Judge Pohl, the first trial judge, um, suppressing the clean team statement. So apparently the government's motion for – or the question of whether that's going to be reconsidered is still pending, Um, And so it's still theoretically out there that the now second new trial judge since then might ultimately reconsider that decision and allow the clean team statements in. So that is actually still looming as an open issue, not a resolved one.
0: That's interesting. Well, that's obviously hugely weighty. Correct. And and there is this sort of sense that, as we talked about last time, the 9-11 commission – uh, the 9/11 Commission, the 9/11 trial before yes. the military commissions, one way or another, that it is inching closer into view. Right. So Cohen apparently,
1: is, or or the government's trying to say that you, that that a, a trial date of June 2020 is realistic. I have to say. No, I don't. You know, so you over. set the marker there. I, yeah, I, took, take the over. Over. I took the over. Take the over. And I put a lot of money on the over. You know, somebody could
0: probably make uh, some serious cash in Vegas by running lines based on <laughs> commission <laughs> the, development. The, the Westgate
1: Sportsbook. What's going to happen tonight's Mets game? And what's the over under on the 9-11 trial? Yeah, when it's going to happen. Good heavens. Um One more thing on the commission before we run. There was one more headline that I just wanted to note. Um, apparently, KSM is volunteering to provide to to make himself available for depositions to the plaintiffs in the 9/11 families litigation against um, Saudi Arabia, um, right? Um, Fascinating. If and only if the death penalty is taken off the table. Yeah. Okay. But you know, I think. I mean, again, we come back. the The one thing I stand, the the one re- sort of big takeaway I stand, I stand by from last week is again, I think it all comes back to the death penalty, and mm. and a lot of this gets a lot easier. You know, if either by dint of a judicial ruling or some deal, right, the death penalty ends up off the table.
0: It's an, it, you know, obviously that particular question about what what is justice for the victims yeah. and of the 9-11 attacks, in as it relates to the fate of KSM, um, is is. Justice better served by his execution or his uh, permanent imprisonment,
1: and I'm sure people will disagree about that. I'm
0: sure they I'm sure the victims themselves divide along right. those lines. That's right, and that's and that that's that's not unreasonable. And,
1: the, and that is how it often is in these situations. Correct. Um, all right. Speaking okay. of speaking of, of of weird stuff happening, should we talk briefly about a couple of strange scotus developments? So, the, so I take it that
0: the justices don't just go on awesome vacations in the summer; they're doing stuff sometimes.
1: What are they doing here? So, um, two quick scotus stories: one in which they actually did something, and one in which somebody else did something. Um, so, the actual did something. You've been all over the the border wall litigation, um, and we had talked, I think, last week um, about the government's pending application for a stay. Of the district court's injunction right. against the repurposing of certain funds for use of the border wall. Right. So the idea is the government would like to allow the money to flow while this is still being litigated. Slow money, flow. flow. Um, and, and I used to have an opportunity flow to it's say. Be? And I used to have an opportunity to talk about this, you know, forthcoming paper I have, which talks about the mechanics of all this litigation. Little did I know that for the first time, the court would actually hint that maybe I'm right. Um, so very convenient. F- so Friday afternoon, we got this um, interesting order and dissent in the Sierra Club case, where mostly by a 5-4 vote, and we'll talk about that, um, the court basically granted the government's application for a stay um, of the injunction in its entirety, right? So um, no matter what the ultimate litigation produces, the money is not going to be encumbered um, between now and when the case is ultimately resolved by the Supreme Court, if and when that happens. So That's a huge win for them. Um, now... Wait, just real quick. Does that mean they can basically, if they were able to spend it quick, yeah. then... Then the thing becomes moot? Um, it depends. I don't remember exactly what kind of relief the plaintiff sought, right? I mean, so yeah. um, I, I assume there's a declaratory element as well. Yeah. There's at least some
0: possibility of something like that.
1: I think that's right. Um, I will just say, so for, the, for one of the first times I can remember one of these cases, the court actually did try to at least give us a clue as to why. So one of the awkward things about all these stay orders is that they're like one sentence, like you know, right. application granted without any analysis. So the court actually provided one sentence of analysis and what basically said was, we're doing this at least partly, or at least largely, because um, there, you know, there's genuine, we, we there's genuine questions about whether the plaintiffs even have a cause of action. Um, we talked about this briefly before. Like, I actually think that's wrong. I think the district court and the Ninth Circuit were both right. That the plans have a cause of action. But I take two interesting things away from this. One, it had nothing to do with the scope of relief. Right? There, the, the reason why the court was acting to grant the stay was not because they were somehow troubled that the injunction arguably ran against the government on a nationwide right. basis. That, okay. That's not actually explicated by the court when they finally turn around and say what they're doing. Um, and then the second thing is... That's a pretty powerful signal to the lower courts for where they should be focusing on remand, right? I'm not convinced that the lower courts are going to necessarily say, you know, we agree with the five justices as opposed to building a better record for why they think the plaintiffs have a cause of action. Interesting. So, you know, stay tuned. Now, um, I said it was 5-4 mostly. Justice Breyer um, – so – Uh, Ginsburg, Sinema, and Kagan all said they would have denied the stay. Mm -hmm. Breyer said he would have denied the stay in part, and he wrote a short opinion explaining why. What he said is he would have split the difference, right? He would have allowed the government to do the thing it said it urgently needed to do, which was to finalize these contracts. Um, but to not actually start building the wall okay. because the government at no point had said we plan to start that anytime soon right so so breyer said i will i will you know I will vote to allow you to make all the preparatory moves." But I don't see any reason to, you know, reach out and allow you to start building when you haven't even said you want to anytime soon. Right.
0: Okay. That actually makes a lot of sense. I think that's just
1: one person who took that view. So I think he's 100% right. I mean, I think even the – I mean, the three lefties, I think, disagree – the other three lefties disagree with him on even the the first part, the contracts part. um, Which I think once again shows you where Breyer is relative to them. Yeah. But I also think this illustrates a subtle but critical point that I tried to make in my paper, which is the reason why that was not relevant to the majority is what Breyer's trying to do is he's trying to balance the harms, right? right? Breyer's right. doing classical, equitable, you know, equitable. Yeah. Uh, discretion, where he says, "Okay, how can I best preserve the status quo in a way that imposes the least harm on both parties? What's the majority doing? The majority, as I write in the paper, and as I said briefly, I think, when we talked about this, the majority approach uh, increasingly appears to be that the government is irreparably harmed, period, per se, whenever its policies are enjoined by a lower court, wholly without regard to the countervailing harm to the private parties or the challengers, maybe their states, right, by allowing the policy to go into place. And this is a perfect illustration of the difference, right, where Breyer says, I agree the government is harmed, but the plans are harmed as well, so let me split the difference. And the majority says the government's harmed, end of story. Wow. Well, if you're right about that, that's obviously quite huge. And this is some evidence towards your view. Quite. Um, Okay. And then today we had a... um, this is not national security related at all, but I am, I am so amused, <laughs> amused by this lawsuit that I, I couldn't resist. So um, Adam Liptak, the, the venerable Supreme Court correspondent for The New York Times, broke this story about a new twist in the opioid litigation where the state of Arizona has filed a lawsuit originally in the Supreme Court of the United States, um, basically asking the justices to order the Sackler family, um, to return money that the state says was looted from Purdue Pharma, so there's a there's a there's a there's a, a growing sort of concern out there that the Sackler family, which is this you know incredibly powerful rich family that owns Purdue Pharma, has basically been um, taking money out of the pharmaceutical company to make it increasingly judgment-proof for the opioid litigation. And so there are all these sort of lawyers trying to stop that. Um, without weighing in on the merits, right, here's Arizona saying, we want to go right to the Supreme Court. Forget the lower courts.
0: I've seen this movie before.
1: Because we're a state. And the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction in, dis- in, in controversies involving a state. Um, so this gives me an opportunity to talk about one of my favorite nerdy Supreme Court doctrines, the Wyandotte Rule. Ooh, let's hear it. So the Supreme Court has jurisdiction as an original matter, which means you start there, right, that the Supreme Court's the trial court, although they never do the trial themselves, they appoint a special master. Um, The relevant statute is 28 U.S.C. 1251, and 1251A says when it's state versus state, the Supreme Court's jurisdiction is both original and exclusive. So if Arizona were suing New Mexico, right, there would be no lower court. Like, yes, Supreme Court, go. And even then there's sometimes when they don't. The Wyandotte Doctrine says when it's a 1251B case, when a state is suing someone who is not another state, the Supreme Court's jurisdiction is original but concurrent of lower courts. Um, And the Wyandotte Doctrine is an interpretation of that that says, therefore, the court has the discretion but not the obligation to take cases where the lower courts have concurrent jurisdiction. So there be a
0: petition yes. to secure the jurisdiction? Would it be styled as a petition for cert? I don't know. No, think it's so, a right? motion it for, it's,
1: it's a motion for leave to file an original okay. bill of complaint. That's not as exciting, but I, it's more descriptive. Indeed. Um, <laughs> But so the Y not rule basically is the, is the justice way of saying, in general, right, although we have jurisdiction if a yeah. state is doing private parties, we prefer first. not to exercise it because we like, you know, we, we're not good at this. We prefer appellate records. We prefer appellate Absolutely. briefs. Absolutely. Um, and I was struck, the the Arkansas, the, Arkansas, the Arizona uh, papers um have two sort of different arguments. The first is um, you should exercise your discretion anyway, right, because of the urgency. Yeah, this is a special case. Right. We, and, and, to, and it's another sort of jumping in the queue thing, mm-hmm. much like what that's the judge doing. That's why it seemed yeah. relevant. Um, but the second argument, which is the, you know, the fodder for a future federal courts exam question, <laughs> is that why and Dot's wrong. Um, right, that as a matter of constitutional interpretation, um, the Supreme Court actually has an obligation to exercise jurisdiction. Ooh, now, so, so, in other words, constitutionally, the right interpretation is it's ex- exclusive. Indeed. Oh, wow. Now, um, Justice Thomas made a variant of this argument a couple years ago, but that was in a 1251A case. That was when Nebraska and Wyoming sued Colorado over Colorado's legalization of marijuana, and the Supreme Court denied leave to file I think on the theory that like there are other mechanisms to challenge Colorado's yeah. legalization. Um, and Thomas said, you know, in a state state case, like we are, you know, we are violating the spirit of the Constitution if we're not exercising original jurisdiction. This
0: is sort of a reverse Marbury, right? A
1: reverse Marbury. It's trying to yes. say you have to have a regional yes, you jurisdiction. Ha- yes. Well, so no one. Listen, I want to be clear. Everyone agrees that as, a, that, that as a matter of both statute and constitution, the Supreme Court has original right, jurisdiction. Right, so it's not a
0: perfect reverse marbury. It's a partial reverse marbury.
1: But but the, the, the question is, is it mandatory jurisdiction or is it discretionary? Yeah, sure. And I am a strong believer that it's discretionary. So, but here's an interesting sort of test case for that. Yeah, and who knew that that was going to come out of, you know, the opioid crisis? I mean, listen, I, I don't mean to make light of the seriousness of these lawsuits, right? But I do think that it's a, it is another example of the sort of jump the queue phenomenon Um, and without any regard to the merits, I just, you know, my own preference is just that the Supreme Court, if it really is going to sort of hold itself out as this, you know, we're a court of of final view, not first view or of review, not first view, which they said like 11 times this term, right? Own that, do that, be that. Okay, so watch this space. Or not,
0: since it's not really a national security case. <laughs> That's right, well, we'll still, we've got a little cottage industry on the side here of uh, non-national security SCOTUS updates. It
1: yeah, although, although, you know, Strict Scrutiny is gonna be putting us out of business. They sent us nice swag.
0: Yeah, thank you friends at Strict Scrutiny. Nice shirts, you're inspiring us to get back in the
1: swag game ourselves. Here you go again. Um, All right, you have a you have a brief U.S. versus Hayat. Update. Yeah,
0: so uh, back in February, episode one hundred and nine, the state of the podcast is strong. We <laughs> covered the latest developments. Our episode titles are the best. Well, it was a they are the best. What do by the way, do we have a good one here? I, I mean, well, I mean, how about our episode titles were the best? That's meta. <laughs> that's meta. That's that's four dimensional chess for sure. <laughs> we uh, picked up the thread of a case that had seemed closed long since the case of United States versus Hamid Hayat say close because he'd been in jail for basically a decade at that point when, uh, through habeas, there was an ineffective assistance of counsel claim that produced a magistrate's resort, uh, resort. Oh, good heavens. It's been a long week yes. already. Um, a report and recommendation, which is to say the magistrate's proposed resolution of the motion, which then the district judge either accepts in full, rejects in full, or accepts in part, um, To grant the motion to find an effective assistance of counsel back during the trial 13 years before and vacate the conviction. Now, as a quick reminder for those who didn't recently listen to episode 109, the deal was this. Uh, Hayat had uh, he's from Lodi, California. He'd been in Pakistan, where the the family had uh, had deep roots. He'd been over there for a while. He'd been in communication with a confidential informant and had been saying uh, unnerving things, to say the least. When he gets back, he's uh, interviewed uh, at length by the FBI. In the course of the interview, he seems to inculpate himself. Although the interview uh, transcript is a bit, it's a bit of a mess in certain respects. There's a lot of questions about. This guy seems to admit to plotting, but he also seems to just be saying, yes, yeah, sure, okay, yes, I did that, in response to the suggestions FBI's FBI is making. But one way or the other, it was enough to persuade the jury. Well, 13 years later, well into his sentence, perhaps with not much sentence left, left I don't know the full sentence, but it must have been mostly up, um, this motion is made on the ground that his attorney had failed to secure, had failed to make reasonable efforts to try to secure alibi witnesses who, in fact, were available to the tune of six alibi witnesses who would present uh, perhaps credible claims that he could not have been where he said he was at various points of time. Uh, And certain other arguments, including that there should have been an expert called to testify about the phenomenon of of people confessing falsely to things they didn't do, but nonetheless confessing. How does that work? How would that happen? How might it have happened here? Um, Failing to secure an Arabic language expert uh, and someone with relevant expertise to offer a different interpretation than the government offered to a piece of of, uh, Quranic scripture written in Arabic that he kept, I think, in his wallet— that had been, had been portrayed as something that supported the idea that the accusations were true. There were all these claims. The magistrate uh, accepted them all and recommended vacating his conviction after all this time. And uh, I think just a day or two ago, the district judge accepted some but not all of the characterizations of ineffective assistance, most notably the failure uh, to call the alibi witnesses, and accepting the, judge's, the magistrate judge's recommendation that they be found credible in what they would testify to. So the only question left was, um, was that failure and one other failure that the court found about the Arabic language expert, was that enough to create true prejudice to the outcome? And the court emphasized that a key factor here is is to consider was the jury out a long time did the jury seem to struggle was this a close call jury in this case was out nine days there were other things the court emphasized but the the bottom line is this the court concluded that this was indeed a a scenario in which uh, the case was a close call um, and that this could have made the difference and so sentence vacated after all this time that's a pretty remarkable development um,
1: and I think that hey, – And one that's blown most under the radar. Oh,
0: yeah. No, no, one had, no one seems to care about this stuff anymore. It used to be uh, a decade ago these sorts of things got a fair amount of regular media attention, lots and lots of analysis by national security law types like us. Um, the, the conversation, the attention has sort of gone elsewhere, the Trump effect taking up all the oxygen in the room. Speaking of which, there's not much oxygen left in here, Steve. We need to be frivolous for a bit. Uh, we've been far too serious for the past 40 minutes or and so. And we've
1: got 20 minutes till the non-waiver, till the, till the non-waiver uh, right. uh, trade deadline. Why don't
0: we just comment a little bit about the trades that have already happened. So sports ball, everybody. Sports ball alert. Uh, well, you know, how about I think it's interesting that the Mets went and brought
1: Marcus, Marcus Stroman. Stroman in. All right. So wait, I, I, I tweeted about this. I know you're shocked. Um, <laughs> yeah. my, my my baseball tweeting is sort of the weakest part of my of my tweet game, I think. <laughs> um, but so when I when I got this alert on, I guess it was what's today? Today is Wednesday. Wednesday I got this on Monday. Today's yeah.
0: Tuesday? No, today's Wednesday. No, yeah, well, today's Wednesday.
1: Right. So I got this on Monday. Um, so Marcus Stroman has been traded to the New York Mets. So here's what I wrote. I said, so the Mets are dot 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 buyers? Question mark. Yeah. Um, I'm all for making moves, just despite the Yankees, but this seems extreme. Um, The Mets traded away their, what, their top two minor league pitching prospects for a guy who's going to be a free agent at the end of next year. Now, that's a perfectly typical move, Bobby, for a team that's in the middle of a playoff race and that's, you know, loading up arms to try to, you know, make it down the home stretch and into October. Do the Mets... Circa 2019, strike you as a team gearing up to make a playoff push?
0: So, no. So, they only get Stroman. (laughs) So, no. So, they get Stroman this year and next. Is that right?
1: I think it's next year. Okay.
0: So, I know he's from the area, and I read about how he's pals with Matt's. Do you think they just think, like, look, we got the inside track with this guy, and we're about to lose probably Syndergaard and... Uh, Zach Wheeler. Are they?
1: I mean, it's 19 minutes of the trade deadline, I and know. neither of them have moved.
0: So, well, you know what's going. On. Okay, so let's talk about that because that's the real story. Yeah. What's happening with Kindergarten Wheeler? Clearly, there's some people having a game of chicken right now. Yes, I know that the Astros were in this conversation. The Yankees, these guys, uh, the Mets really want to get this one. The Astros have already brought up some of their top prospects. They've got such a great farm system. Oh, um, the Astros. I, I, I think I, the guy's name is Kyle Tucker. Is the next guy up? I, I wish I was the Astros. The Astros need to keep him because they're going to lose some of their outfielders next year. Uh, so I, what I understand is happening is that the Mets were willing to do Syndergaard to the Astros if they'll include Tucker, but the Astros are not going to budge on that because they need him for the future, um, which raises the question, what could the Yankees perhaps do? Uh, it's pretty wild to think of. When was the last Mets to Yankees or Yankees to Mets direct? significant player transaction. I'm sure there have been some insignificant mm.
1: ones. You know, there was a while where there were none. Um, like, there was a moratorium on Mets-Yankees' trades. Oh, Mets-Yankees' trade history. Thank you, USPN. New York clubs have swapped players 15 times since 1966. Anybody we really recognize? Let's see. Kendall Coleman for LJ Mazzilli. Um, Mike Stanton for Felix Heredia. Um, Ryan Becundoa, Jason Anderson Anderson Garcia for Armando Benitez. Oh, David Justice from uh, Robin Ventura. Be... Oh. Like two Asian fogies.
0: Yeah, yeah. Not yeah, not when
1: it mattered. That might have been the I mean in, in all of the history that might have been the biggest uh, the biggest Mets Mets Yankees trade. Yeah, Mm. It's pretty weak. I mean, the the, the history of Mets-Yankees trades is a bunch of, like, pretty mediocre players because I think there's just such the sense of, like, how dare you actually make a deal with the, the, you know. I mean, this is another good point that, you know, for Mets fans, I don't think this is true for Yankees fans, but for Mets fans, the arch rivals, not the Braves, it's not the Nationals, it's not the Phillies, it's the Yankees. That's really something. And the Yankees are like, who are you? (laughs)
0: Yeah. UT gets that in some quarters. There are a lot of teams that get real fired up to play UT. That UT's
1: like, no, but our rivals are the Oklahoma Centers and the Texas A&M Aggies. So ESPN is reporting as of three forty-five Eastern Time that the trade market for Zach Wheeler is down to the Astros and the Rays, and that there's uh, and, and there's nothing about Syndergaard. Syndergaard likely staying put. Interesting. I wonder how he feels about that. Um, he said last night. I mean, he had a great game last night. He said like he wants, you know, he wants to stay in New York. Good. I think he likes oh, it there. that's good. It, that's good. And I love him. I would have
0: loved him as an Astro. That would have been cool. Um, Wheeler is an Astro. I, I, Wheeler is an yeah, okay yeah, pitcher. I, yeah. I don't think it's a game breaker. There, the Astros though, they're just trying to get a good number four. Yep. They wanted Syndergaard possibly to replace Garrett Cole if right. they can't keep Garrett Cole his right. free agent next year, right. and, and he's going to be the top. Pitching free agent, That's I think, right. on the market That's next right.
1: year. All right, Bobby, if we stop in the next 20 seconds, it'll be under an hour. Do it. Do so it. So he this is, is on at you. Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. We'll be back next week. Um, stay safe out there. Don't get traded. Adios. Under an hour.